This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. This is Larry Lessig. This is another episode of Another Way. This is a very different episode of Another Way. As you know, if you've been listening to this season, we've been laying out a theme of understanding the other side. My friend Frank Luntz, who had been an advisor to Republicans for the whole of his career, though not a Trump supporter, was the first in that theme. Bill Kristol, who was a right, who is a conservative, um, one of the leaders of the neocon movement, um, also not a Trump supporter, continued that conversation. Rob Sand, who of course is a Democrat, but Democrat from Iowa, so with some perspective on what the view of non-Democrats in Iowa might be, was the third in that series. This is the fourth and in some sense, the most unique. Because I'm not going to tell you who this person is. This person is a friend, a friend who surprised me when I discovered that he was a supporter of Donald Trump. He's a prominent person in the academy. I won't say where, um, but you shouldn't assume it's here at Harvard. And he's willing to have this conversation about why people are supporters of Donald Trump, why he was a supporter of Donald Trump, but not willing to pay the price. Now, that might be cowardice. That might be unfair. That might be wrong. It's understandable, I think, given where we are, but not so eager to litigate whether that's right or wrong, I'm much eager, more eager, more interested in this conversation. So over the course of this next hour, more than an hour, we couldn't stop. You'll hear a back and forth trying to understand where this idea of supporting this man might have come from. And in the end, I feel like there's more to hear There's more to say, but there's something we've made understandable. Stay tuned. As I said, we have an interesting and different guest uh, who's not going to be named uh, in this conversation because the conversation needs the freedom to roam in places that it might more easily roam with um, a cloak around it. We'll see. So um, um, I'm going to call you George, uh, friend. Um, I'm going to call you George. As I've introduced you, um, you're someone I've known for many years and I and, and a friend for many years and a colleague who've, who's worked with me um, um, for a couple years. Uh, and so is somebody I know uh, and somebody who, upon tripping upon the fact that you were going to support the president in this last election, was surprised. And so the hope of this conversation is to unpack the surprise and not unpack my surprise, but unpack exactly why we're in this place where we would be surprised like this. Um, uh, You know, it's not like, in my view, it's not like a normal election where things were 
relatively close, and I could see going either way. My side of the world sees it in such black and white terms that it's just incredibly hard to understand how someone who, um, you know, I and I know many would respect would come to this particular place. So obviously, we don't understand a lot. And what I'm hoping, George, is that you can help us begin to understand that. So why don't you start and and let's see where that conversation goes. All right. Well, Larry, thank you for having me. Uh, I've always been impressed by your work and uh, both in the scholarly domain as well as the, your public facing work. And it's an incredible honor to be part of these conversations. And I think the conversations that you're convening are incredibly important at this time in our history uh, and at this time in our politics. Uh, so I am very grateful to be here. And I think I maybe preface this by, by trying to take some perspective. Uh, you know, I think as, as somebody who's, you know, studied, I think, fairly widely in both uh, the social sciences, history and whatnot, I'm always struck by the fact that for most of human history, uh, human beings are organized along tribal allegiances and uh, often in tribal conflict. And it's really only the last 300 years or so that uh, you've seen this explosion in, you might say, cooperative possibilities, uh, both politically and economically, technologically. And this has been an, an extraordinary achievement. And I think one of the, the concerns, one of the dangers of our present moment is that we see in all sorts of uh, parts of social discourse, of politics, uh, and even in, in the business realm or social realm, uh, you might say regression to more tribal times. And so I think understanding the other, um, figuring out where it precisely is that we disagree, uh, and the way in which certain, those disagreements might be negotiated and resolved, uh, and also where those disagreements, we might find that we have to tolerate each other's disagreements and figure out the right grounds on which to do that. I think this is incredibly important. So take it, um, you know, you're inviting me to explore you know, my support for Trump, but I'll also include in my reflections my impression of many other Trump supporters' uh, views as well, because I think there was a kind of diverse coalition. In fact, one of the more surprising things about Trump's uh, initial victory was uh, how many people it brought out of the woodwork uh, and how many coalitions it realigned. Uh, like, I think most lifelong Republicans, I, I thought Trump initially, uh, it was a joke candidacy. I didn't think it was, uh, it was genuine. I thought it was something that was done as a publicity stunt. And it, it really, you know, during the entire primary season, it wasn't something I took very seriously. And it was something, you know, when he got the nomination, then it forced a, a closer look at exactly what is it that he's talking about, what you know, what are the ideas, if any, that animate this candidate? What are the policy proposals? And I have to say it was, it remained pretty vague uh, at the outset, um, but there were things that impressed me. And uh, if I could just distill, I guess, a few of them, and, and we can delve deeper on, on any one of these. Uh, very early in the campaign, I remember there was, you know, some uh, gaffe Trump made or some uh, comment that was dug up that he had on record. And of all Trump's comments, he made a lot of terrible comments, a lot of said a lot of appalling things. So, uh, but this in this, you know, if you understand the spectrum of those, this was a rather uh, innocuous thing. And uh, there were a lot of media commentators that said, ah, well, Trump must drop out. 
Uh, we've declared he must drop out. Of course, he can't go forward. And there was a uh, very quickly a sort of media narrative around he must drop out. He must drop out. And Trump said no. He, he just he, he brushed it off and he said, and I think in this particular case, he was right that this was a substantive list. Sub, this had no substance, substance less uh, critique. And he brushed it aside, and it was something that I don't think any other candidate could have done. They would have, uh, you know, there would have been this obeisance to the media narrative. They would have tried to apologize, go back. And that was actually really interesting to see uh, what, in this very narrow instance, looked like uh, a power play by the media and Trump rebuffing it. And, of course, this became a theme of his presidency. In fact, I think the most distinguishing fact of his presidency was the, the sort of latent war between uh, you know, the Trump and the media, which I think had all sorts of ramifications uh, that we might talk about. Um, as far as original things he was saying, I think he was one of the first people in uh, the Republican side or on the Republican side to really critique the uh, Iraq and Afghanistan wars. There, I mean, there are others that had done so from less uh, prominence, but uh, I thought that was an important critique uh, within the Republican Party. Uh, he was also somebody, and you have to think back now to 2014-15, you know, he was somebody who called attention to uh, China as an emerging strategic rival that the U.S. wasn't taking perhaps seriously enough. And then there were, uh, you might say, uh, a number of issues where Trump was calling attention to failures uh, historical failures of those who had run institutions. And Larry, I know you've worked for a long time on the theme of institutional corruption. Um, so you're familiar with these, things like the financial crisis, you know, failures across a number of American institutions. And uh, some of this is, you know, rather common sense. Some of it wasn't particularly well articulated or researched. But it struck me that, and this, I think, struck a chord with a lot of uh, people who felt themselves to not have been the winners, uh, within these particular institutions, that, that this person was somehow calling attention to some sort of dysfunction. So, you know, these things were all, they're interesting to me. I think they shook a lot of things up. And, you know, you know person at the end of the day, I, you know, I, somebody who tended to be on the right for a lot of my life. And when I looked at basic policies and what might happen with regard to courts and judges and, uh, you know, energy policy taxes, that sort of thing, uh, for me, it was sort of, you know, you go with your party, and I didn't see anything, although I was concerned, I didn't see anything that would necessarily disqualify Trump. Okay, so, um, but, but let's, let's, frame, I'll stop there, yeah. Yeah, let's separate um, two, two, two issues here. So, so first of all, let's be clear a little bit more about what you just were ending on, your, your own background. So you, you have been on the right, considered, a rep, considered yourself a Republican, though I, 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 I have to say that I don't think we ever discussed that in the whole of our relationship. I never, you know, this was never an issue that we talked about. But but you considered yourself a Republican. Did you consider Donald, you know, if we think of Donald Trump as a list of policies, did you consider Donald Trump's list of policies as Republican policies? Uh, you know, when you actually look at, I think, the substance of things that were in his first uh, platform the first time around, uh, Many of them struck me as kind of boilerplate, uh, so not necessarily that much innovative, uh, sometimes not very detailed. Um, but on on major policy issues, he struck me as a you know even a moderate Republican, actually perhaps not a uh, yeah, particularly you know deep or certainly not a policy wonk. Um, but I, I think on that record, you know, if you look at 
for example, his appointments to the judiciary, or if you look at, uh, actually, I have to say that I, the tax cuts I thought were not perhaps the best structured. Uh, if you look at energy policy, if you look at trying to re you know rein in the regulatory state, you know his record is I think a record of a you know somewhat you know moderate to conservative Republican type of record. Uh, now there's plenty of other things that got into the the Trump mix, which were highly unusual I think historically for Republicans, and um, you know that was part of the challenge to figure out you know to what degree these were sincere, to what degree was rhetoric, how deep did these go. Uh, and I think there are a lot of question marks on foreign policy, um, you know, a lot of lamentable, lamentable rhetoric around the immigration question. Um, so it was, you know, certainly a, uh, there were some unusual dimensions to it, but by and large, I actually think his record was, you know, fits fairly squarely within a lot of Republican policy aims. Well, I, I mean, okay, but his record, of course, is something that would have been carried uh, out or carried into effect by appointees, no doubt many, all of whom were essentially Republicans. So the fact that, you know, you know it's right. certainly clear that the deregulation objective, which um, Brookings has cataloged all of the regulations that were um, removed, um, was a classically Republican perspective. But you've identified things which were pretty core to the Republican Party, uh, free trade, um, the neocon fights in Iraq uh, and in other places like that, um, which um, Trump was not, right? So, and, and you know, the thing that obviously uh, excited me when he talked about it, not that I was ever excited about him as a candidate, but when he talked about it was money in politics. He's the first Republican to stand on a debate stage um, that was actually broadcast to the world and called out the corrupting influence of money and super PACs. Um, those were distinctive policies, but um, they were strikingly non-traditional Republican policies, right? Uh, yeah, and, you know, I, I think in exciting ways. And, you know, if I look back at that time, I think people like like Peter Thiel uh, came out and supported uh, someone like Trump or supported Trump because he thought he could shake things up. So there, there was a sort of, you know, Washington dysfunction narrative, which uh, you know, th th there's this underlying, I guess, uh, debate between, you know, the swamp and we're going to drain the swamp. And, uh, you know, there there are historical shades of, I think, Republican uh, infighting there. But uh, it was actually exciting. And, and I thought that was one of the more sort of brave things Trump did was to call out the Iraq war as a massive, uh, a massive mistake, uh, costly in lives and, uh, and money and something that was you know, done under bad pre false pretenses and something that was uh, continued to be executed in ways that uh, were hard to defend strategically. Many things about Trump's campaign that shook the boat, but that could also be part of what was exciting about it. Uh, the trade thing scared me the most. It, I, I really worried very much that uh, on the trade issue, there, the rhetoric was extremely broad, and the question was really what that would look like in detail. Um, I'm surprised. The detail turns out is complicated. So, do I think the the new version of NAFTA is better than the old? Yeah, I think there were many improvements there, and I think that trade at the end uh, was improved. Uh, but that, of all them, was one of the things I was most concerned about at the outset. And I, I think the record on that is a is a mixed record. Okay, so if we could agree that Trump as a list of policies at least initially, was an interesting mix. I mean, if you're a progressive, you're not going to find it attractive, except you'll be intrigued, I think, by the rejection of Iraq 
war, or the rejection of foreign wars, and um, and also the money and politics stuff. And you know, to the extent that we saw Trump pull back, resist being pushed in a Bolton-like way to be much more aggressive in foreign policy. Um, even progressives might look at that uh, from a policy perspective and think it's okay. But if we think about Trump not as a list of policies, but as a character, um, uh, do we see the character in the same way? Um, you know, because m my, my, my sense of the character, Donald Trump, is a man unconstrained by the truth. Um, and obsessively focused, narcissistically focused on um, his own place and his own purpose. Um, and of course, all politicians to some degree are, but it, it, you know, at least from our side, this, this doesn't look like a normally different politician in this respect. This, this just seems orders of magnitude different or difference in kind. Um, the level of uh, dissembling and the you know, it was never really clear whether he even understood the the, the falseness that he was uttering. So, it, it, do we do we at least agree that was the case, or do you do you, did you hear him and not think that these things were as false as as those on our side did? There's a lot there to unpack. Let me begin by saying clearly, there's something uh, psychologically uh, interesting or unusual about Trump. And uh, I'm not a psychoanalyst, but you know, I think that those sorts of observations, uh, it's hard to escape them. And in some ways that, you know, that was probably essential for him to be able to, you know, say and do the kind of things and, and shake things up. So I think that was a, an ongoing question mark exactly, uh, you know, whether you want to call it egoism or narcissism, you know, there's something peculiar going on there. Again, I think that's not entirely unusual amongst many of our politicians. Uh, maybe more of a spectrum than a, uh, a kind distinction. Um, but then you use this phrase, you know, falsehoods and, you know, things that he was saying that were false. And there are certainly things Trump said that, that were not true. Uh, then there were things that were, uh, and you saw this as sort of continuing dialectic and media coverage, sort of distinguishing, uh, you know, jokes from rhetoric, uh, Know, uh, factual assertions from hyperbole. Uh, I'd be curious, you know, to maybe on the top of your mind to know what what you felt were the um, the falsest things, or maybe the uh, the most dangerous falsehoods that Trump cracked in. Because uh, no doubt that there were, you know, he was somebody who you could tell in his manners of speaking was an imprecise speaker. And he would often often engage in hyperbole. He'd often engage in things, and then sometimes aspects of the rhetoric were also, uh, I, I think, uh, derogatory, demeaning in all sorts of ways as well. Um, but on the issue of falsehood, and you know, this comes up with these you know discussions of fake news and back and forth. I found so much evidence from almost every political side of people trucking in. Uh, manipulations of the truth, trucking in uh, either omissions or uh, uh, bending the truth, and sometimes flat out, uh, you know, flat out lies. And I have to say, I, what struck me about Trump was not just that, that he engaged in some of this rhetoric, but he somehow got every one of his enemies, I think, to engage in this sort of behavior to a degree that I found almost as horrifying and sometimes more horrifying. Uh, so I'd be curious, sort of, off the top of your head, you know, 
the, the things that stood out to you as when you use words like, you know, false, is it, well, I'd be curious what, you know, what continues to, you know, when you talk about that come to mind, and I'm, I'm curious to test that against sort of the things that come to mind when I think about how the opposition resistance presented some of its claims. Well, I mean, you know, there was the harmless, just ridiculous lies. Like, <clears throat> I was named Michigan's Man of the Year, <laughs> um, or um, windmill noise causes cancer, um, you know, or the head of the Boy Scouts called me to say that it was the greatest speech they'd ever had. These are just, you know, just lies, and they don't matter much, but they just bespeak a character. But then let's talk about, you know, what's called the big lie, which, you know, did matter a lot. And there'll be many, many months in jail that people spend in a consequence of the big lie. The presidential election was rigged and stolen. Now, there's just no basis for that claim. It's not a slight lie. It's not like it was close. You know, it's not like arguments about 2000 and Florida and, you know, 534 ballots. If you had counted this class of hanging chads, then Bush wouldn't have won. It's not that kind of lie. It's flat out false. And it had a huge consequence. So let's just start there. Is that, is that claim true or false? This is a great, a great place, I think, to focus the conversation, an important place. Um, two things I want to maybe raise. So off, off the, my understanding, and clearly there's a lot of truly insane assertions made about uh, the election uh, coming from the right. So let me acknowledge that uh, at the outset. Um, my understanding of the most reasonable claims that came out were of two sorts, which I guess one question was within a handful of states, I believe Pennsylvania was the most contentious, whether or not uh, the process for setting up absentee ballots was constitutionally permissible. And that was an open question. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, it's a question that at least two Supreme Court justices seem to think deserve further scrutiny. Uh, and then there was a question, as I understand it, of, I guess, signature verification and large discrepancies in a handful of states of the amount of ballots disqualified uh, you know, previously versus this last election. Uh, and, and those two things were, were plausible things to look into. Uh, I, to my knowledge, there were no smoking guns that would make us think the election was not rightly decided. Uh, I understand the interest in looking into that. Um, and then this question is, well, how is this going to be communicated, spun, narrated? And it, it is an interesting sort of hypothetical to ask whether it was a bigger lie to assert that the uh, Russians and Russian collusions determined the first election uh, or that the, the second election was stolen. And, and what's, what's interesting about it, and, and this is actually sort of, a, I guess, a common theme of one of the things that concerns me is my worry is that the right, the, the far right has started to look more and more like uh, the far left in sort of their willingness the tactics and the uh, the ways in which they operate um, and the things they entertain. Uh, so I, I think the the there are slight questions about the you know election that deserve to be looked into, deserve to be investigated. Uh, I think it's also you know worth investigating any leads on Russian collusion. It is remarkable though to, to compare those two and what we increasingly know, and I, I suppose we'll know more soon from the Durham report of the ways in which 
it's hard to sugarcoat this, but you know, people in government from the previous administration were instrumental in fabricating evidence against an opposition political campaign, and then uh, actually spinning this into a two and a half year, I mean, investigation, which which it turns out there was no basis for. So uh, again, I, I think there's, you know, you, there's there's interesting mirror aspects of both of these. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think tremendous excesses and, uh, you know, lies on both sides that were played to mobilize uh, people in, part of, in, in pursuit of a partisan agenda. So, yeah, the, uh, the worry is the political rhetoric um, and the wishful thinking. And, and again, it's a question of, I'm sure there are people that sincerely believe the Russian uh, collusion narrative. I'm sure maybe Trump himself actually believed the stolen election narrative. There weren't enough responsible mediators between uh, those messages and the the population uh, on both sides to actually, I think, you know, moderate what should have been a healthy amount of skepticism in what is understandably a you know a, a serious question of concern. Um, but yeah, it's it's in many ways the what what the people on the right did in response to that, and January sixth in particular. Uh, reminds me in terrifying ways of, you know, what, what people on the left did the previous eight months in terms of violent uh, protest, riots, assaults on court buildings. And that, that mirror image of one another really, I think, is a, is a, a major cause for concern. And I think it's something that, that true liberals, true moderates should, uh, you know, be vociferous at condemning. So mirror image is a big word. Um, I mean, you know, with respect to the Russian question. Um, I, I don't actually remember anyone saying, anyone serious saying, that they knew that the Russians had stolen the election. Um, oh, there were questions. I would, I would invite you to go back and look at uh, a number of, you know, choice interviews. Um, I mean, people like, like Brennan, uh, you know, former CIA head, I think coming very close to, to saying, if not verbatim, you know, something like there is clear evidence they're aware of and it's going to come out any day now. Well, I mean, you know, I think that the Republican-authored Senate Intelligence Committee report suggests that there was there was something serious there. Without reaching a conclusion of its ultimate effect, the fact that there was something serious there was the thing that I think people were deeply concerned about. So legitimately, it should be investigated. And I think it was, you know, whether Mueller should have done it more quickly is a good question, but I think it was appropriately investigated. Um but there's no parallel. There's literally no legal parallel to what happened on January 6th. Because even if you say, as you say, that there were questions about whether there should have been a procedure in Pennsylvania done differently, um, even if that was true, it had nothing to do with what was supposed to happen on January 6th. Because under our law, the law says that Congress says, we promise you, the states, that if you have a process for dealing with contests about elections and you resolve that contest at least six days before the Electoral College votes, and there's only one slate of elections that gets, slate of electors that gets presented to us, if you do those three things, we promise we will count your votes, period. So on January 6th, there was nothing to talk about anymore because all three of those conditions had been satisfied. And yet, to that day, the president expected and asked for and called for the vice president 
to ignore the law and to throw out slates of electors from at least three states to make it so that he would be a selected president again. That was flatly illegal. And there was nothing flatly illegal in what happened, you know, even assuming that this framing of we, have, we can only talk about Trump if we talk about the parallel um, to some Democrat. But just let's focus on this. That was flatly illegal, George, right? And if it was flatly illegal, why can't you say it was just completely wrong to be promoting something that was flatly illegal uh, on January 6th, which had seemed to me a predictable effect when you had thousands of these people rallied to believe that they their election had been stolen, that they would do something like they did um, to cause the violence and the death that, that consequence, that was the consequence of it. Yeah, I have to understand. I never, uh, it was never clear to me what this grand strategy was of uh, president and his allies. allies. I, I, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm, I am literally guessing here the idea was, I don't know, Cruz and Hawley would, there would be some procedure that would require, I guess, give him another two weeks to do investigations. And, but it, it, it seems to me things were long since settled by then. But I, um, again, I'm, I'm projecting here, but my guess is the hope, their biggest hope was to have registered an objection and have crowds outside saying, look, we're supported by the people. Uh, you know, clearly what went down was such uh, extraordinary uh, unbelievable incompetence, imbecility, uh, you know, l- ludicrous. Uh, it's hard, you know, it's hard to even reconstruct what, you know, if there was a plan, what that plan was. Um, but I, I should say, I, I was worried actually when, well, when this whole between November 4th and January 6th, uh, as the debate developed, I, I was worried that your earlier work might actually come into the crosshairs. And I was worried that you yourself might have been accused of insurrection because I, my recollection, and I'm only reading this from media accounts, but it was something like, you know, there was this move after 2016 in states where the Democratic vote was clearly decided, have electors uh, not vote the will of the people and try to deny the presidency to the duly elected president through a kind of I guess loophole in the in the way in which electoral votes were mandated, and 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 again, it's an interesting question of its legality. I guess we know now that it's not legal, as nine Supreme Court justices ruled against it. But it does strike me again the the equivalences of uh, they're not equivalent in all sorts of ways. The violence being uh, the most important one, but there was I see. I saw it on both sides, an attempt to do anything possible and look for loopholes within constitutional procedures to try to deny the presidency to the person who appeared to be duly elected. And uh, again, the, the violence is, is a, a totally new ballgame here. Uh, but in terms of the, the legal question, um, I, I saw that both sides were extremely creative in trying to find uh, legal constitutional loopholes. Uh, to overturn an election. So I, I, again, I see more, more and more aspects of mirroring that disturb me, but uh, uh, certainly the, the violence was uh, appalling and, and something that uh, you know, needs to be strongly condemned. Okay, so, but that's a fair question. Was there an equivalence? Um, what happened in 2016 uh, was actually, uh, remember, of course, the predicate for the belief among some that there was a reason to um, to to explore what the electors should do, which is that Donald Trump had not prevailed in the popular vote. 
But that fact led electors, many electors, to ask the question whether they should do something non-traditional, which is not to vote the way that they were pledged. And the question, the legal question, was whether they were entitled to do that. Now, yes, the Supreme Court has ruled that they're not entitled to do that. And we brought that case and, and pushed it all the way to the court because we thought it was an incredibly important question to be resolved outside of the context of a particular election, because obviously it's a hard question to resolve when it decides who the president will be. But the resolution of the court, um, you know, at least among legal scholars, especially among originalists, was not consistent with what the power of electors was originally understood to be, even if in some sense I'm happy with the way the result came out. I do think the electors in 2016 um, were not making it up. There was the tradition that insisted that they had a discretion which had been exercised, and they were trying to exercise it. And they were exercising it in a particular way. What the group, I, I wasn't part of the Hamilton electors group at that point. I just defended them afterwards in the Supreme Court. But what the Hamilton electors were saying was, um, let's find um, at least 37 Republican electors to join with us. And if we can find um, uh, you know, 37 Republicans and um, 37 Democrats who will say, we're going to vote for somebody other than Hillary Clinton and Don or Donald Trump, then it can go to the House and the House can decide whether the person who lost the popular vote should be the president um, or whether somebody else should be the president. But it's a second look given this democratic inversion. Um, which, of course, was not ever expected by them to lead to the election of Hillary Clinton um, because the presumption of the House, given the Republican Constitution, was they were not going to pick anybody other than the Republican, but at least give them a chance to say, should it be the person who has not won the popular vote or should it be somebody else? Now, we can one can argue about the plausibility of the strategy, whether it was had basis in law, which it plainly did at the time. There was, there is, there's just no basis in law for the belief that on January 6th, Josh Hawley had a right to stand on the floor of the Senate and say that anything other than confirming the electoral votes could be his vote. I mean, he could give a speech and he could say, I don't like what happened and I think there should have been a better process and we shouldn't have mail-in ballots or blah, blah, whatever, whatever else he wants to do. But when he cast a vote saying he objected there was no legal basis for that vote. And, and so the point, you know, to the extent that even after the riots, there were, you know, how many people in the Senate and how many people in the House, I'm forgetting the number, but an astonishing number who joined together to say they object to the certification of the vote. That was yield, that was nothing more than just political posturing in the face of um, in the face of the president's continued insistence. It had no basis in law or fact, right? And, and so I, I don't think it's a mirror of what might have happened before. It you know, was about the election. In that sense, it's a mirror. It's about who's going to be president. In that sense, it's a mirror. But it was an attempt to get around the procedure that was in the Constitution as opposed to the electors who are in the Constitution and historically have exercised discretion and you know, it's never mattered except for the vice president in 1836, I think, but um, but still was was a move that was contemplated and 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 allowed. This move that the Congress would reject the certified electors from the states is just plainly inconsistent with what the Electoral Count Act says. That's not they don't have the power to do that. 
And so that they did that, they thought they could do that, seems to be something that we should be able to say is different in kind, even if it's, you know, addressing the same question. It, you know, just to game this all the way out, hypothetically, it, it does seem to me if, if you had, say, prevailed in 2016 and gotten a, uh, a set of electors to decide that they would not follow the vote of their state and submit that, uh, I, I do think it's, a, it's an interesting open question, the proper response to that. Surely lawsuits would have been filed uh, but if the date approaches, uh, the date at which you one has to count it, and there was this question about every, it, it seems to me the plain understanding of what's been going on for elections for a very long time is that uh, electors vote uh, their states. That seems to be the plain understanding on every, you know, every news media outlet uh, in the entire entirety of America, which is a rare thing for somebody, people to, to agree on. It, it strikes me that there would be a, an interesting question about what, uh, what power is there to say you would be concerned with the uh, you know, electoral you know, vote that has been turned in? Uh, I, I think the challenge is that the Constitution doesn't, certainly doesn't contemplate this in, in, in either direction here. And I, I, I'm willing to acknowledge the legal argument, which I, I suspect you're better to make than better position to make than I am, that it's standing in law is not obvious at all. But but it's interesting. You're right. You mean, let, let me concede one point, but then make clear one point. Um, I am incredibly happy <laughs> that the Hamilton electors. I, I don't know what would have happened if the Hamilton electors had succeeded. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I agree that there would have been an extraordinary uprising of, of, of frustration among Republicans, at least, and and you know, maybe. A, the same sort of thing like it happened in 2000 when, for the first time in modern history, we tripped on the fact that the winner of the popular vote doesn't necessarily win the Electoral College. But, you know, I agree that would have been a really, um, really important struggle. And I'm just kind of happy it never, in some sense, I'm happy it never happened. But actually, in 1969, Congress debated this issue directly. In 1969, um, a Nixon elector voted for Wallace uh, from North Carolina. And um, when it came to the floor, a number of members of Congress, in the equivalent of the Jan uh, leading up to the January sixth event, said um, they didn't think that his vote should be counted. They didn't think it was a regularly given vote, and under the law, it's only regularly given votes that are supposed to count. And and Congress debated it, and what Congress said was, it's a regularly given vote because he's an elector and he gave the vote in a regular way. He wasn't bribed or coerced, so it's a regularly given vote, and. Congress has no right to second guess what the electorate done. Now, it didn't matter. Nixon was going to be elected regardless. So it's not like there was any, any stake to it. But the point is, this is not the first time, this wouldn't have been the first time this question was raised. And when it had been raised, historically, um, the resolution was, this is just a power we've given these people. We call them electors, but that's the power, like a grand jury has the power to indict or not, and a jury has the power to convict or not. The elector has the power to follow or not. Um, uh, and, and of course, you know, historically, they're called these faithless electors. The electors, the Hamilton electors, were in some sense, you know, trying to be as faithful as they possibly could be to the people who had voted for them. Because they knew every one of those people would rather have someone other than Donald Trump than Donald Trump because they had supported Hillary Clinton. 
So when they were trying to engineer to bring about a result other than Donald Trump, that was perfectly faithful with the people who had voted with them. It was just more complicated than the simple question, okay, Hillary Clinton got our vote, so therefore vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, but so, but but the point is, here we are in January sixth, and you know, let me make another concession. You know, up to Jan- leading up to January sixth, people on this podcast will know we did an enormous amount of work to map out the strategies that we thought were going on, and that you know people had told us were going on to use uh, legal strategies to overturn the election through interpretations of historical practice or the power of the vice president and all sorts of things like that. And there was one scenario which we mapped out in one of our podcasts where the vice president, pointing to particular events in the past, asserts the power to be a presiding officer, which means that... um, he gets to rule on open questions, and Congress can overturn him, but only if both houses agree. So if, under this theory, Mike Pence had said, I see a slate of electors from Pennsylvania for Joe Biden, but I see another slate of electors from Pennsylvania for Donald Trump, and I think the vote from uh, for Donald Trump is a more authentic vote, uh, so therefore I will count the vote for Donald Trump. Under this theory of the vice president's power— The vice president's ruling is the presumptive ruling. Congress can overturn it, but only if both the House and the Senate vote to overturn it. Obviously, the House would vote to overturn it because the House was controlled by the Democrats. But at least when we were thinking through it, we imagined Mitch McConnell playing a much more partisan role than he turned out to play. And Mitch McConnell could have easily said, "Mm, we're not going to vote to overturn it. So then his ruling would stand. Okay, but then the point about this is, I, I, you know, with, when this was le- when we were leading up to the, the the actual vote and imagining this happening, I many times thought to myself, "What should a patriot do? What should a patriot do?" You know, if Mike Pence had played that game, which clearly Donald Trump had asked him to play, and had ruled Donald Trump into a second term, I'm not sure what the right thing for a, a patriot in a dem- democracy to, uh, to do is. I mean, you know, we're, we're so quick to condemn the people who believe that the election had been stolen from Donald Trump. But if we had thought it had been stolen from Joe Biden, what, what should have happened? Um, and so the point is, I think that if you push people to the edge, you will produce this kind of craziness on both sides. I think you could produce this craziness. But that points back to what's pushing us to the edge and and again, I just I'm struck that I've asked you to say whether you think it was just wrong to claim the big lie, because there is no basis to believe that the election should be flipped and gone the other way. Um, and and what I'm struggling with is in, in, instead of just saying yes, it's wrong to have claimed the big lie. You want to say there's a mirror to what happened in 2016, which we can argue whether there's mirror or not, but standing alone. Is it wrong for the president in the middle of a heated political situation to be insisting that his election was, quote, rigged and stolen when it plainly was not? Yes, you raised two really important questions here. Let me uh, address the the last one first. Uh, So I think my position, I think the rational position uh, on the Republican side should be unless there's smoking gun uh, demonstrating uh, electoral fraud, election fraud, uh, that's documented well and uncon- you know very well documented before uh, you get to January 6th, then and the game's over and, and you have to go forward. Uh, so 
in light of that, yeah, I thought the, the, the rhetoric leading up in early January, uh, the, the game had clearly been lost. Now, the, I think it's entirely reasonable to do a deep dive to try to understand uh, everything from where the procedures were followed to you know whether there are discrepancies in, in ballot uh, signature matching and all this. So that, that's entirely, it seems to be appropriate. And again, this isn't, it's not like there's zero election fraud or the whole fraud, sure. the whole election's fraudulent. So it does seem to me like the uh, absolutely appropriate response in those weeks between you know, November 4th and January 6th is let's do a thorough and deep dive to, to you know, verify the integrity of our elections. And, you know, I, I think some states do a better job of this than others. Uh, and, and I'm not sure the... Uh, the lessons one should draw from this last election is that, well, this may be a different conversation on, on issues of uh, election security. Uh, my general impression is somebody sh should come out of this experience saying, you know, here are some states where I think we need a better process and maybe the kind of reforms that Florida, Florida put in place after the hanging chat incident would be worth putting into place in other states. But I mean, the, the ultimate answer is, yeah, unless you uncover something, a smoking gun by January 6th, then, uh, you know, and I don't, I think reasonable people understood this, you know, the, you know, the election's over and uh, you transition power. Now, there's a, there's a second sort of suggestion from what you said, which I think is really, really interesting, which is what would have happened had Trump been reelected? And would the, you know, political violence we saw on the left in the previous eight months, uh, I can tell you, uh, let's just say in DC, having visited not long before January 6th, all the downtown area was boarded up. And that wasn't because of Trump protesters they were worried about. The, the, uh, again, I think you're asking the right question. How do we get to this point where people on both sides are willing to deploy violence? And there is a psychology of if you think you're in an existential threat then you could imagine why patriots on, on all sides of the political spectrum would be alarmed. But the, the record here, and, and I have to say, this was the most astounding thing to me in my lifetime politically in America, was the response to widespread violence in America's cities from May to roughly November, which I have to say was, was profoundly disheartening, profoundly scary. Uh, and I, 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 you know, condemn the violence from January 6th. Uh, and I'm actually on record as saying they should have started shooting the Trump people when they started crossing the line, uh, the police line, and that would have stopped it much quicker. So I, I think I'm consistent on this. But yeah, I, I do wonder what the counterfactual would have looked like. And uh, but we have the, to be very was, precise about the counterfactual. I'm not talking about Donald Trump winning. I think my view is if Donald Trump had won in the sense that he'd gotten more votes, or even if he hadn't gotten more votes, it was clear that the electoral vote was with him, notwithstanding. Um, I don't think there would have been violence. What I'm talking about is a very particular event, which is it's absolutely clear under the law that um, something like the Pence game shouldn't be allowed. It violates a million things, but whatever. The point is... Pence plays the game to rule himself into the vice presidency and Donald Trump into the presidency. So in the precise terms that the placards on January 6th declared, the election was stolen. Um, and so I agree. So what I'm saying is I think that you could imagine mirroring 
violence events in the face of the election being stolen. But, but that puts force on the question that I asked that you've, I think, agreed to now, that it's wrong to have said the election was stolen. It's wrong to have rallied your people around the idea the election was stolen. It's fine to rally them around the idea we ought to have better election systems, which is what happened after 2000 in Florida and across the country with the federal law to actually make it easier to have better election systems. It's fine to say we ought to be more careful in the way that we collect or, or distribute mail-in ballots. That's perfectly fine. But there's just no doubt the election was not stolen. And when you tell people that it's, quote, stolen, you empower them, you entitle them, you obligate them if they're a patriot in a way that you uh, which had that has just had no basis here and 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 that's the that's the remember when we started this conversation you know a long time ago um I, I was trying to distinguish between the list of policies Donald Trump has and the character point and and I just wonder whether you know this lie doesn't cross the line or wouldn't is there any lie that would cross the line to make it so that you would say that the character is now disqualified yeah, so two important things here. Um, this was a very close election, right? I think it's something like 40,000 votes had been distributed slightly differently uh, that could have changed the outcome. Uh, so yeah, again, I think it had gone the other way with 40,000 votes. I don't, honestly, I don't think the rhetoric would have been much different. It would have been a rhetoric about, you know, how many Russian Facebook ads were bought, who was colluding with whom. It, there, there was, it, it was a very close election. Um, now, at a certain point, unless you have a smoking gun, you you give up and you, you admit defeat and you you move on. So that I, that was, I think, clearly a mistake not to do that by January sixth. But that doesn't mean that I think one can't be rightly concerned by uh, you know everything from policy changes of you know dubious legal value in certain states or not policy changes, but you know uh, the way the elections were conducted. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's going to be an ongoing debate here and, get, you know, there's a voter ID stuff. There's, uh, you know, the question of how you verify, uh, you know, absentee ballots and that sort of thing. Those debates will continue to be with us. And I, and I hope one lesson we can learn from this is that if people don't have trust uh, in their electoral institution, that does create a lot of problem. And, and both sides, I think, have sown distrust. I hope we have the ability to, you know, address, and there, there are proposals, I think, on each side to do this, and we can debate those merits. Um, but I think that that is vitally important. It's not unreasonable for someone to say this is a very close election. You know, very small differences uh, could have determined it. And, you know, to justly, you know, wonder, and, and again, these are, so, these are such small margins. So, you know, I, I don't see... I, it is an interesting counterfactual what it would have looked like on the other side, but I think we basically agree that yes, unless there's something, and there wasn't documented by January sixth, uh, the fantasies about uh, you know these these procedures to try to maintain the presidency were were pretty absurd. Um, there were small differences in key states. Had they gone the other way, could have flipped the Electoral College the other way. It's actually smaller. It's something like 26,000 votes in three states would have thrown the election into the House of Representatives. But, you know, the structural problem that has become even more central to our discussions about our so-called representative democracy is that it was not a close election. It was 7 million votes between uh, Donald Trump and um, and Joe Biden. Um, so, 
you know, it's bigger than uh, Obama um, in uh, 2008. Um, uh, only George Bush, I think it's even bigger than George Bush in 2004. Um, so it's a, it's a big victory from votes. It's just the weird way our electoral college has evolved. It's extremely tenuous given the electoral college. Now, if it had gone the other way, if, you know, 40,000 votes had flipped in those three those three states plus um, one vote in Nevada had gone the other way, then, um, yeah, I think we would have had a lot of frustration and anger on the Biden side. Um, I, it's hard for me to imagine the vote, the, you know, the rhetoric, the election was stolen if it had been just the votes going the other way. Certainly Joe Biden was not, would not have been pushing that kind of rhetoric. Um, and so it's a different hypothetical from the hypothetical I'm talking about, which is literally under our law, stealing the election. Um, but uh, um, it's a hard question to know exactly how it would be resisted. What's striking about the Russian thing is that I don't think there's a lot of evidence of much engagement by Russians in this, in this round. Um, I mean, there was plenty of evidence of engagement of Russians in the last round you know, before the election and after the election. So there, they, there obviously was a change in the desire to in, involve themselves, or maybe they succeeded in uh, being even more invisible in their engagement. So it would have been hard to fall back on something like that. There would have been frustration, there would have been anger, but without some cheerleader at the center insisting on a fact which is just flatly false, I don't see how it, it spins out of control like that. So if you look at the big picture, um, you know, broad, and I've heard, I think, you know, you've said in previous podcasts something along the lines of, you know, we're a majority Democrat country. Uh, and so isn't it wrong that, you know, you would have Republican control of, you know, the executive or legislature? Um, and I, I guess in the big picture, I maybe want to push back on that a little bit and say, you know, when you look at the numbers, it's something like, you know, 25 to 30 percent of the population is ideologically registered Republican Democrat. Uh, but but more like 40 to 50, 45 to 50 percent of the population is you might call moderates, you know, people who, uh, you know, want to live their lives, aren't tremendously politically engaged. They'll switch votes across aisles, you know, depending on different elections. And I think what was really striking about Trump is that he he mobilized uh, a lot of people who traditionally hadn't voted. And this, you know, this election was a record turnout. I think it was a you know more voter turnout than a century. And uh, so it's a seven thousand there's 7 million person difference, um, you know, roughly, what was it, 74 to 81, and something like 5% of Republicans voted for Biden, and that's something that, that may not happen with the next candidate. And I also think Biden was a candidate that was uniquely able, I think, to get elected against Trump. It's not clear to me that any of the final, other finalists um, actually would have won. Uh, so there's an interesting, I think, kind of meta question right now about you know, political parties and represent, re representation to the American public. Uh, they're a great Democrat. I, I love John Delaney from the outset, and he got off the stage pretty quickly. Um, there was also, I think, great, great Republicans. The, you know, of course, the primary process pulls people to extremes. And I, I do think there's a there's a worry about how those extremes um, translate into uh, our political dysfunction. And one of the concerns, you know, talking about character rhetoric uh, and and truth and falsity, one thing that really did disturb me. The only thing that disturbed me almost as much as the political violence of the last eight months during the Trump presidency was 
this sort of uh, you know, war with the media, where I thought you know people on both sides acted disreputably. But I, I remember there was, uh, I think in the initial email we exchanged uh, near the election, where uh, you had raised an interesting hypothetical or an interesting question about Trump saying something out loud when coronavirus first hit about a cruise ship off the coast. And it, it sounded like, and I don't remember the exact details, but you know Trump might have made a political calculation that could have jeopardized the lives of tens of thousands of people. And you know, isn't this a horrible insight in the character of the man? And I, I think you're right, that that is. What was striking to me is around the same time, in, in fact, a few months earlier, it was well known that the, the controversy to which Governor Cuomo is now engaged in New York, um, both in the, I guess, over 10, 15,000 deaths that uh, his policy might have caused during coronavirus with regard to uh, nursing homes, as well as some of the uh, sexual harassment stuff. This stuff was widely known, reported on many months in advance of the election, and yet it couldn't be covered. It couldn't be discussed. And there was this, and this, this is just one tiny example, but there were these uh, over and over uh, inability to have sort of uh, critiques of both sides. And so I saw a lot of bad behavior by the far left, by the far right. I saw the right's behavior being scrutinized, which it deserved to be. I found it frustratingly difficult to get scrutiny um, you know, through large media establishments of misbehavior on the left. And actually, one of the great things about having Biden as president is now there's sort of uh, some space to do that again. But I do think one of the, one of the there were many lessons, I guess, of the, the Trump era. Um, I think one of them was the, the degree of illiberal convictions uh, on both the right and the left. And, uh, you know, I hope that this will, and there, there are things we're still fighting today, but I hope this will cause a resurgence of people in the middle, uh, uh, you know, of moderates, of, of actual, you know, liberals in the classical sense that uh, really want to develop a society in which mutual cooperation is possible. And, uh, and I think the, uh, in some ways, the last four years have drawn out the worst for both sides, and I hope we're able to critique both of those sides going forward. And I think a lot of lessons have been learned uh, with regard to Trump. I'm not sure as many uh, have been learned with regard to the left. Well, I mean, wouldn't we say that what Governor Cuomo is facing right now is exactly what Donald Trump should have faced? I mean, Governor Cuomo, you know, a series of women have come out and alleged inappropriate behavior with Governor Cuomo. Nobody's alleged rape the way they had alleged with Donald Trump, but, you know, inappropriate behavior. And he has this fundamental mistake, which led to thousands of people dying and then lying about the mistake. You know, I, I've never liked Cuomo. I called Cuomo Nixon, um, you know, six years ago. Um, so I have no patience for Cuomo. But what's striking to me is that you have Democrats lining up, calling for him to step aside. Um, uh, both senators now huge number of uh, New York leaders um, who are calling on this. And Joe Biden just simply saying, there's an investigation, let's wait till the investigation and then we'll make a decision. Um, what's striking is you didn't see anything like that, right? With the Republicans and Donald Trump. And wouldn't you have wished that you had seen something like that with Donald Trump if, I, I take it, you celebrate it that we see it with, with uh, Governor Cuomo? Well, I think we saw it like played out on a daily basis with Donald Trump. I think it was uh, there was no detail left unturned. There was no uh, lead or rumor uh, left uninvestigated. There were even many uh, apparently fabricated. 
But the, uh, what, what strikes me, the, the discontinuity between the vigor with which, um, you know, I, I, you know, the press is in many ways the fourth branch of government, the vigor with which I, I do feel like Trump was extremely, uh, you know, thoroughly critiqued, as is appropriate, but everything known about Cuomo was known uh, six months before the election, uh, or maybe four months before the election. Well, I, mean, and, I don't know about the, that. These women didn't come out till recently. But I mean, what I'm asking is the leaders, the Democratic leaders. Who are the Republican leaders who called on Donald Trump to resign? Uh, this would be resigning for. Well, I mean, the combination of any one of these things is parallel. That was your point, right? Um, um, we have the sexual assault. Oh, uh, allegations. Well, the, the uh, the two things that it strikes me that the, the the most serious accusation is that you know you made a decision which caused the death of tens of thousands of people and then lied about it and and Trump in that case had actually not made the wrong decision he thought aloud about the wrong decision and uh, made the right decision and there I think there were a lot of instances like that where uh, you know thinking aloud was impolitic uh, but the right decisions were made the uh, it, it's actually interesting, the thing that will get Cuomo in, it sounds like, actual trouble is uh, the, the final surfacing of these many uh, allegations. And, and those, I think, we need to look at more on a, you know, a more individual basis to see how those compare with uh, you know, various accusations about Trump's improprieties. But it, it just struck me the, uh, the, the, the willingness to actually uh, report on these things. There was an extraordinary uh, divergence. And I do think that that's, that has left a bad taste in many people, uh, many people's mouths. And you know, we're talking about 74 million Americans that voted for, you know, many for different reasons, perhaps. But uh, at the end of the day, I don't think it's because maybe this is a, a a nice way to put this. I don't think it's because they loved him so much as they feared the kind of powers that were. Uh, that Trump brought out of the woodwork, uh, everything from the the mobs this past summer to a, a press that I think engaged in as much falsehood as Trump did. Uh, so I think that this is part of the. I mean, I think you know different sides have their narratives about this, but uh, I think that you know there's a you know roughly 47, 48 percent of America that was deeply troubled uh, by what they saw on the other side and. Uh, Again, I hope the, the net effect is not increasing polarization, but there might just there might be some sanity in uh, trying to pull both extremes back to something that would be, uh, you know, a basis on which to conduct politics that is truthful, rational, well debated, scrutinized. Uh, and I think that's a common goal that, that people on both sides of the aisle could have. Yeah, I agree with the objective. I, I'm not sure we're there yet, um, because as 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 insistent as you are about the mirror and that this is on both sides, I, I'm still having trouble finding the equivalences, right? Um, um, you know, we could we, we haven't delved into, because we just don't have time, but we haven't gone into the series of really critical decisions made um, far beyond the um, cruise ship decision, which led to the deaths of you know, many more than tens of thousands of Americans. We haven't talked about that. So that's why I thought you brought this up originally. We had perfect parallel, bad decisions about a crisis leading to deaths and sexual impropriety. Um, but one could say that the Trump um, uh, flaws on both 
registers were much more significant than the Cuomo. And I would have said what's striking to me is the unity of Democratic leaders to say, if this is true, you've got to step aside. And um, But the more fundamental point you just made, which is something we agree on, and I, and I just... I, I don't think we get to the truth by by pretending that there's a perfect, you know, this is like climate change debates, like there's two equal and opposite sides here. Um, we didn't see leaders in the Republican Party, enough of them, willing to stand up and even against the big lie. You know, there's a couple who are willing to stand up and, and resist on January 6th, but so many others who are unwilling to do that. And And, and given you've been willing to acknowledge that that's a big lie. Will we at least agree that we've got to be at a place where people have the courage to say what's true on both sides, but the courage to say what's true, even if it's in the face of what's got to be the biggest um, force in the Republican Party for now and for the foreseeable future? Yeah, that's, that's I think, very well put. And, uh, and again, on the mirror theme, I, I think there's many Republicans uh, and even many moderates that uh, vehemently would like to endorse uh, principles of free and open debate, of truthful debate. And again, one of the, uh, I think, concerns, and again, this is just a, a mirror, is, and the, the left right now has to, to deal with and work through uh, wokeness and the, the worry today that you can say true things publicly and have your life ruined for them. Um, you know, before we get into, you know, free speech issues about things that are controversial, there, there is, I think, a sort of interesting meta debate that, that actually transcends the Trump issue, which is a kind of an issue of, you know, what does free and open debate look like in a free society? Of all these many issues, I think I'm, the, I'm least certain that we're headed in a positive direction. I think, you know, in some ways, the violence has been unmasked a bit on both sides. We're starting to get better recognition of that. Um, you know, the, there's, I think, certain things that are improving. I think the, the, the latent thing, which I'm perhaps most worried about going forward, is the ability to conduct truthful, open, honest, and comfortable, uh, you know, debates in public without fear of having a, a mob uh, to try to get you fired or ruin your life. And, and that's something, again, I, uh, there, there are mobs on both sides, uh, but I think that that ideal of honest, truthful debate that actually aims to, you know, progress in our understanding of each other and progress in uh, some consensus about the right way to, uh, you know, improve our uh, government is really a worthwhile objective. Well, certainly, um, I agree with you that we have a serious problem in, in, the, in the cultural support for saying true things, especially true and, and uh, difficult things to say. So there's no disagreement about that. Um, I have one last question, and then I want to just thank you. So, um, so the last question is this: We've we've talked indirectly uh, about the Black Lives Lives Matters protests. Um, you've invoked the violence of the protests. I, I'm interested in the basis for the belief. So, I just you know, if I asked you like what percentage of those protests, which of course were incredible number, inspired by the murdering of George Floyd, what percentage of them? Um, uh, were peaceful. What, what's your expectation of that? It's an interesting question whether, I mean, I, I, the vast majority, obviously, and, and, and not to overplay this mirror thing, I, I, I think there was something like 10,000 people at whatever that January 6th Trump rally was, and I think three or 400 that ended up uh, engaged in the Capitol uh, mischief. 
Um, so I, again, I, I, yeah, the vast majority peaceful. And look, the aims of Black Lives Matter, of course, uh, really important. I think the worry is that you allow, uh, you know, an excellent justified cause then to be hijacked if, if simply invoking that, um, you know, as an excuse for some small, very small uh, minority of people to, you know, burn down buildings, attack courthouses. Uh, you know, that that's a problem. And the, I think, you know, there's an interesting issue of rhetoric here, uh, but of course, look, you know, what's deceptive is saying, uh, trying to divide people, uh, you know, I think the vast majority of, of Americans, and this is a whole different discussion, but uh, I actually think, and it shows in the exit poll numbers that uh, a lot of the narratives around Trump as, uh, as racist are actually mistaken in some really interesting ways. But it's really what I saw happening during some of the Black Lives uh, Matter debates was I think the vast majority of Americans being a people of goodwill that want deeply to improve issues of racial justice in this country. And then a very small minority of uh, fairly radical people, sometimes very violent people uh, that use that as cover to do uh, you know, truly bad things. And, and that's a problem. And, and being able to distinguish those two, I think is really important. And it, it was frustrating. I think Boston and Massachusetts, my talking to friends up there, did a very good job on the law enforcement side. Uh, whereas other, other places, Seattle and Portland, I think, uh, you know, actually struck at the very foundations of civil society, not being able to protect citizens. And they have crime rates now that are, you know, three times what they were a year ago. And so, you know, these, these are tough issues and they require a lot of judgment. And uh, I have to say it, it, it disturbs me the way in which the highest ideals, that some of the most important things we need to be work on are then corrupted by, uh, you know, small groups of people that uh, use that cloak for very narrow, very partisan and, and sometimes very destructive ends. Yeah, we agree about that. Um, although, you know, the differences are important. Um, the study that was released in September found 93% of these protests were peaceful. And that's it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, um, but the underlying one could say, one should say the underlying cause, <laughs> you know, has hundreds of years of frustrating in uh, lack of progress behind it. So to the extent one says at some point there is cause for frustration, this might be such a cause as contrasted to, you know, you were in you not to out too much here, but you were in Washington, and you know, before January sixth, there was also other protests, which also led to violence. Um, you know, Trump-related protests led to violence, um, uh, and it's hard to see the equivalence in uh, Black Lives Matters versus making sure Donald Trump is the next president. But let's agree, there the these these vi these movements can always be hijacked, and the hijacking is bad. But the hijacking of one is not a justification for the hijacking of another. Um, and we should be able Absolutely. to say one's just flat wrong, especially when it's something as fundamental as capturing the, uh, capturing the White House against, against the law, um, um, which is, you know, technically what insurrection, uh, insurrection is. Um, okay, George, uh, we've gone longer than we're supposed to go, and it's obvious we could go on for much, much longer. But uh, what I was confident of, you've demonstrated, which is that um, we could have this conversation. And 
disagree and yet uh, demonstrate that there's a capacity to disagree and continue to disagree, though, um, with understanding and um, and respect. And I'm I'm grateful for that. Uh, and uh, and let's continue um, in whatever form um, uh, to try to find a way to bridge this gap. Because I agree with you, we need to find a way to get to the majority again, feeling empowered uh, and not captured. Um, I fear, uh, which is what I think is a description you've given, which I, which I think is true. It is fear. What causes it? We could go on for two more sessions about, but but that is that's what's there. Thank you so much for having me. I hope we do continue. Uh, I think we can go for for many many more sessions. But uh, again, I think what you're doing here is so important, and uh, I wish you the best for for this project, and hope we'll have more opportunities to collaborate in the future. Great. This is Larry Lessig. This is the end of this episode of the podcast, Another Way. Next, we'll have the genius from Princeton on the question of gerrymandering and how HR1 might address that problem. Sam Wong has been a, a force of nature in using math to help understand the problems of gerrymandering and why it is so important to voter equality. That episode will then be followed uh, by another in the stream of HR1. You can find these podcasts at equalcitizens.us slash another way. And there you can find a place to give us feedback and ideas and other people you think we should talk to. And you can find a place there as well to share these podcasts because sharing them is what makes them live. I'm grateful for your support and feedback and, of course, your support of the themes in uh, that uh, Equal Citizens has been supporting. Until the next episode, thank you for listening. This is Larry Lessig. Mm-hmm.